Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 12th. Um, and today we have an interview with Steve Symington. It was Symington, right? Oh, God, I forgot. We recorded it oh, a few days ago. It's either Symington or Symington. We it's say it correctly Symington. during the interview. So I'm pre- Yeah, either way, um, it was a fun interview. I really enjoyed it. We talked uh, Boston, Omaha, Nutanix, and Disney. Um, he's got some fun takes on those, some interesting takes, and that was a lot of fun to get into. But before we get to that, you and I both have our stories for the week. What's yours? Mine is gaming. So EA and Activision, the two largest United States uh, gaming companies, studios, I guess, they reported earnings. And then there was a big company came out, uh, Nuzu, came out their projections for what the market is going to look like for games, uh, the growth of it for the entire industry. So thought we'd talk about that a bit, see how that industry is looking because they've gotten a boost from everyone staying at home. This is kind of the one thing everyone can do. Okay, and mine is titled The End of the Sharing Economy. Um, But basically, I'm going to go through Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb. Uber and Lyft had earnings, and then Airbnb has had a lot of news slash noise around it. So I'm going to talk about that. And then as always, we have current state of FinTwit, Hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. All right, welcome in. Today, I'm going to kick things off with the end of the sharing economy. Uber and Lyft had earnings. So I'm going to go through those, and then I've got some questions that Brett and I will kind of discuss, and then I'll also hit on some Airbnb news. Um, but I'll dive right into the Uber earnings. Gross bookings from rides declined 5% year over year, and that was for the first quarter. And so if you think about the first quarter, we really only saw, I'd say, like, two weeks of impact i'm guessing uh, i mean it was two weeks of hard impact two weeks of slight impact so basically all of march was impacted but yeah april is definitely worse okay and then um so sorry gross bookings declined five percent year over year for rides uh eats jumped 52 percent for gross bookings year over year they had a quarterly net loss of 2.9 billion dollars keep in mind second quarter will be just as bad i would assume um, maybe, maybe worse. Well, eh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, it'll be bad though. One Uber driver reported his rides capacity had fallen about 75%. So if you extrapolate that out, um, for like all riders, you can kind of do the math and it's been like, I saw sort of horror stories with it where he said, yeah, my income is dependent on this. I don't get unemployment benefits. I might go homeless or I might be homeless because this is my only job. This is my only income and they're losing 75% of their income or their rides capacity. So it's tough for them. Um, but I'll kind of get into that later. They have Uber has 9 billion in cash. Um, they cut 3,700 full-time employees or fires 3,700 full-time employees, which is equivalent to 14% of their workforce. Four days ago, interestingly enough, Lime Scooters announced a new $170 million funding round led by Uber and Google. Is this really what Uber should be spending their money on? Uh, I'm going to say, well, I mean, if you're a shareholder, you could be like, eh, whatever. But yeah, they have $9 billion in cash. They have gig workers that aren't really uh, taken care of by healthcare benefits like a typical employee would be 
or you know laid off benefits, things like that. Um, maybe the government can do unemployment, but yeah, if you have that, you should be trying to take care of your workers. And this is why, to me, Uber and Lyft are just not good investments because they aren't treating their workers fairly. At least compared to you know, it can be a good side hustle or thing like that. But if people are doing this as their primary job, they do not have the benefits that most people working in the Western world do. Right, and. I'll just tell I'll I'll hit Lyft's earnings and then I have some more questions on that. So Lyft had a first quarter net loss of 398 million. Last year it was 1.1 billion. So good on them. Um, they're improving a little bit, still losing around 400 million per quarter. Um, and then 2.7 billion in cash and cash equivalents. They announced layoffs as well. They announced layoffs of 17% of their workforce. Interesting note, I found that California sued Uber and Lyft or are suing them. Um, for misclassifying their drivers as independent contractors instead of employees. I don't know if it'll go through. I don't know what'll come of it, but the drivers are struggling to get unemployment benefits because they're classified as independent contractors. So yeah, like when we talk about that Lime Scooters funding round, yes, technically they don't have any cost cutting that they have to do in regards to their drivers because they're not employees. But if you don't keep them happy and if you don't treat them like actual employees, there's no incentive to work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, the drivers might not be as happy. Yeah, it's just not the way to go about a business and especially with their business models being terrible as well. So you're adding on treating the workers poorly and your business model barely works while you're treating your workers poorly. That's just not a recipe for something I want to invest in over the long term. Yeah. And I mean, we're hearing more and more horror stories about being a driver, whether it's for Uber or Lyft. Um, and that comes from like actual scary stories where there's people with a gun or whatever, and the riders are getting mad and punching you. You know, you've seen probably those YouTube videos. And then there's these where uh, 75% of your rides are gone instantly and Uber's not there to help you. Why? Like, it's, it really doesn't seem like it's worth it for anyone to drive Uber or Lyft right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd rather work at an Amazon warehouse. Um, just I haven't worked for either. Uh, I guess I did try to drive for DoorDash for a small time, and it really sucks. Uh, that, but that's for the Eats business for Uber. I mean, it's just not fun, and it's, it's really terrible. You're just going to fast food places and driving around. Uh, the But, I mean... The horror stories thing, that happens in a lot of different industries that are consumer-facing. I don't think it's just more common than Uber and Lyft, at least now, after they put in those restrictions and uh, you know regulations compared to all the like kind of no-rules attitude they had, 2013 to 2015 range. Uh, but, I mean, it's probably still worth it for some people to drive in their spare time, but relying on it as a full-time job seems very, very risky. Yeah, Um do you think we'll see a lasting effect from coronavirus or this social distancing kind of thing? Or do you think we'll be, you know, three months down the road and Uber and Lyft rides are back to full capacity? Mm, so you're saying like back to 2019 levels? Yeah. And I mean, not just typical Uber, but like Uber pool, that kind of thing where you're getting in a car with four people. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it'll be three months. It probably won't be three months, but whenever we do, it'll get back to full capacity eventually, uh, but they still don't have viable unit economics. Uh, so that's still a concern, even in a thriving economy. 
Okay. Um, Airbnb news. Uh, Airbnb saw cancellations um, on over 90% of their stays or reservations, uh, according to in, in recent weeks. And they also announced recently that they acquired a billion dollars in funding in the form of high interest debt. And they are apparently looking to raise another billion dollars. They committed to paying hosts $250 million in exchange for their lost income. I don't know if that's enough. I, I'm assuming it's not enough to replace all their income, but they, you know, I guess it's good on them for taking some initiative. Um, and then on May 5th, Airbnb announced that they were going to be firing 1900 employees or 25% of their workforce is Airbnb doing what they have to do here. Yeah. I mean, I don't look firing people. You got to do it. I mean, you're running a business, uh, and they're trying to take care of their stakeholders, you know, their partners, uh, the people that run houses for them, um, that probably do it as a full-time job. Um, and I guess there's a lot to unpack there, but there's also the fact that they're not taking bailout money from the government compared to the airlines. Uh, they probably need less money. Uh, but I kind of like what they're doing. Uh, but they I think pro- go ahead. I think they're doing it the right way too. And if you follow anything on FinTwit, they basically put out this forum of like, here's the employees we're getting rid of. Come to us for any of them. Like they're great employees, basically trying to give them the best possible. Yeah. And and they kept their uh, healthcare benefits. So that was nice. But Um, okay. Big question here though, is each of these business models, they are essentially a middleman with zero responsibility or the, you know the whole we're just a platform you know we we don't employ the writers we don't employ the airbnb hosts do you think that's kind of biting them in the ass that they really don't like they're just a middleman because the only form of cost cutting that they can really do is fire their own employees yeah it's it's tough because they have that liability insurance on their host uh homes what is it up to a million dollars per host and then when you have a thing like this uh coming out of nowhere that can have a lot of you know money that you need to pay out to your host um if things go happen but i doubt that a pandemic or anything is in the contracts uh i mean i still like airbnb's business model because it's the unit economics seem like they work we haven't seen the s1 yet so we don't know but compared to uber and lyft it seems like it's a lot better. Uh, maybe before the pandemic, I would have invested or thought about investing at a price to sales of like 10, depending on their growth rate. But now I see those valuation multiples just coming down a ton, like to, you know three or four for Airbnb, even though if their long-term trajectory or growth rate is still solid, I think that risk uh, just brings that valuation way down. Do you think there's any chance they go public within the next two years mm, it'd, be, it'd be interesting uh they probably i don't know what if they're thinking we should have gone public or great we're still private because if they still had you know the advantages of being public say you're someone like mm, shopify they did that offering because they have such a high share price um you can use that share price as a currency but private markets it's a little harder mm, who knows i don't know if they're buying themselves like they're kicking themselves or they're like, oh, you know, we can wait three or four years until we actually go public because there's plenty of liquidity in the private equity market. All right. Uh, what's your story for the week? 
Okay, gaming industry uh, plus earnings. So EA and Activision Blizzard, the two largest gaming companies. So Activision Blizzard runs Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, uh, Candy Crush, a few other games. EA does sports and then some Star Wars stuff, Apex Legends, uh, just as a reference. But first, I want to go through these gaming industry projections from NewZoo. Don't know how reliable they are, so we can really ask uh, whether the predictions are logical uh, because, you know, when people make these projections, it's not like they're guaranteed to come true. But they said in 2020, the gaming market will be around $159 billion. Mobile is at $77.7 billion, growing 13.3% a year. So mobile is the majority or about half, I guess, of the total market and growing quicker than the entire market. That's because almost everyone has a smartphone now. And it's not really the big legacy games, but it's just a ton of games and people can play them for free on the phone. And that's more of an advertising model. Think Candy Crush, which Activision Blizzard actually owns. Uh, the console revenue is at $45.2 billion, growing 6.8% a year. But that has slowed a bit, and it's a little smaller, but it should get a boost because the new consoles are coming out, I think, in 2020 or maybe 2021. That would be uh, whatever, the next generation Xbox and PlayStation. Let's get into the Activision earnings, though. And I'll, do the, I'll just read off a quick you know, numbers here. They beat their own outlook number on sales, although it was down from the previous year just because of the lumpiness of the business. They had a record earnings per share number, raised the dividend 11%, 34% operating margin, $1.6 billion in trailing 12-month free cash flow. EA earnings, $1.8 billion in operating cash flow, repurchased $291 million worth of shares, and that is a one quarter. $291 million worth of shares, strong operating leverage, so they had increasing gross and operating margins, and then they had record sales. Question here, what holes do you see in the gaming's thesis over the next decade? Because I think it's one of the most solid, and it's a reason why I own EA and Activision Blizzard, both, both the stocks. Yeah, this whole week I've been doing sort of like a lot of, uh, well, I've been digging into like gaming industry and primarily EA and Activision, and I, I love EA, and I'm I'm probably gonna end up taking a position. I don't see any holes. I don't see the flaw. Um, I guess that there's like probably like other parts of the gaming industry that might grow faster, but Mm -hmm. that's I mean that maybe that's like the viewership side or the um, esports kind of teams type of thing whether that's twitch or youtube i guess but those all belong to big tech which is like because if you look about it or if you look at it it's xbox is microsoft playstation is sony twitch is owned by amazon i like youtube's google you don't want to invest like you can't invest in any of those individually i feel like the only pure play here is the content creator so ea activision take two interactive uh, those those companies i think are going to benefit from all the functionality that's being added onto this yeah so the big growth drivers i guess you know mobile they don't have as much of an exposure because their main titles you know fifa madden call of duty are mainly console based although they, although they are expanding uh for example the modern warfare uh, mobile game had over 100 million downloads in like a month or even more uh internationally which is going to be good for helping to try to get them attacking mobile and then like streaming they don't really have any connections with that although it's tough to see how much that is worth unless they start really ramping up ads but then esports 
Uh, they have a really good lockdown because it's kind of like the NFL owning all the equipment. You know, Activision Blizzard can run their Overwatch. I don't know if they own. I think it's Overwatch, uh, Hearthstone, Call of Duty leagues. They own everything in that. So however big that is, they're going to take a majority of the profits. And then EA obviously runs the sports leagues and Apex Legends. Um, I don't know. It seems like they're going to benefit a lot. But yeah, there is that concern, that big tech concern. I know Amazon's getting into a little bit of the gaming distribute or uh, studio stuff. They're just nibbling at it. I think they sent out a rumor they're making a game for free. Uh, so I don't know. I, it seems like it's a rock solid thesis. It's not exciting growth. Could be 10% revenue growth for the next decade, but I still like that a lot, especially if they're both the companies are doing solid capital uh, allocation to shareholders. Right. And someone did raise a concern to me on Twitter. I kind of asked about this, like what are the big names in video gaming on the content side or the studio side? And it's only one person's opinion, but they said EA is not user-friendly. It's like not the primary user-friendly experience. It feels very mm. corporate. Okay. Like, um, And they said Activision kind of errs on the side of we are with the users. I guess I get that. Um, but that I think there is probably a niche sports audience that says it's user friendly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's speculation. I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to tell. And maybe that's just one person. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, the game, the company that everyone likes is, you know, is Epic games right now with Fortnite. And I guess that's why the stocks EA and Activision took a hit, uh, in the end of 2018 into 2019. Uh, but it seems like with Call of Duty Warzone and Apex Legends, they're coming out with these Battle Royale games that can compete with Fortnite and try to make them more, uh, you know, more for adults because Fortnite seems generally for people like under 16, under 20. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, any other notes? Nothing. I mean, I had the, the free cash flow multiples. If you're looking at these companies, Activision on a trailing basis, is at a way higher free cash flow multiple and EA is at a lot lower, but EA had some tax benefits. Activision had, uh, I think, some hits or deferrals. So they're a little closer, but still, Activision gets the higher premium on a free cash flow basis and EA's is a little lower. Just for reference, whatever company you like best. Okay. Um, current state of FinTwit this week. I So one of our listeners recommended that we talk about this uh, this week and it, okay. it, how to invest when you think think you're at the top of a bubble or you know when you when you feel like you're in a bubble and prices are high or whatever mm, that's a tough question um and so I, I was just going to respond with what we primarily do and i have my answer if you want me to go first uh yeah you can go ahead okay so for me i don't really look at it on a macro level or at least i try not to um mainly because i think I'm incompetent when it comes to like macroeconomics. Like I, I don't, if, if tons of economists are wrong all the time, what edge do I have? So I look on a, I try to look at it on a case by case basis or company by company, which is basically, is this company going to return value to me over the long term at its current price? Um, and usually that kind of times the market in and of itself without trying to, because yeah. You're going to get the valuations are going to fall in line with the rest of the market typically. So 
I mean, if you're looking at it and you're like, uh, I just can't get around this valuation for an individual company, it's probably like that for a lot of the companies in that sector. So I just take it, I try to take it case by case. Um, and then if I don't find any businesses that I like at the time, I just leave it in cash or I leave it on the side so that I'm ready to deploy it in the event that there is a drawdown or something like that. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. Um, you know, we like to talk about the macro stuff sometimes, but it's not what we use to invest. Uh, there's a lot more. There's some experts out there that you could follow. You know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. There's more reputable ones than others. Uh, if you're trying to get into the, you know, investing during a bubble, but with us, uh, if you're listening to this show, hopefully you kind of have the same um, investing style as us. I guess you don't have to have the exact same one, but we invest in individual companies and, you know, ETFs sometimes mainly just broad based ones. You have a long-term time horizon, uh, and you hope that over the long term, you know, capitalism does its thing. Uh, there will be lumps along the way, but that's not something that is easy to predict. Uh, and it's, it's just hard to make, you know, make money doing it. And it's a lot easier to just invest in companies buy and hold for the long term. That's where a lot more successful investors make a lot of money and earn their, uh, you know, I hate using this term because I say it's a cop out, but optionality with their life. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, did you have any other current state of Fintwit notes? Well, uh, I mean, I was going to say, do we have to talk about, it's going on right now. Uh, so there, we might, it might be over, but there might still be some more things going on tonight after you listen. The Tesla again, uh, which I guess I have to ask, is it fairly valued? No. Okay. No? no. Okay. Well, it's, move it's on. Like, I mean, it's worse. The it's, it's as bad as ever. The C, if the CEO said it wasn't, I don't know what more, right. what clear indicator you need to realize it is, it's overvalued. Yeah. And whatever games he was playing. But today, uh, the, I love what fell on Elon Musk on Twitter. It's amazing. Uh, he's tweeted, I will be at the factory. Uh, and if anyone wants to arrest us because of the court order for the county says that people can't go back to, you know, work um, and that, you know, factories can't get running up for another like couple weeks. Uh, and there's some, you know, legal disputes, things like that. They said they're suing, but he said that he's going to be on the factory line and that if anyone should arrest him, or anyone should be arrested. It should be him. So if we get a picture of him walking out of his factory in handcuffs, it, it I would, I mean, it's going to be great. Yeah. I, man, it's so infuriating. And honestly, I'm thinking about like trying to detract from Elon on Twitter because honestly, it's consuming far too much of my time. I know, but. And you know what? All my hot waters, we'll talk about this after the interview. All my hot waters are linked to Elon. So. Oh, I'll save some of my takes, but okay. Yeah, well, that's all I had. Um, you have to follow this story on Twitter. Uh, if you're not, you're missing out on a ton of entertainment. Yeah. And it is awesome that we are able to watch this live, essentially watch this unfold live via Twitter. Yeah. I call it a meltdown. Some people might call it tactics, but who knows? All right. Well, next up we have our interview with Steve Symington. Um, or Symington. <laughs> I think it's Simon I probably should remember this, but uh, what did you like about the interview? Uh, Boston Omaha. Definitely wanted to talk about that. It's something I hold in my portfolio. It is a mini Berkshire and you don't just invest in someone because they have a company like Berkshire or because they have a relationship with Buffett and Munger, which the management does and the business model is. But it's, I think it's a great business and they're doing a lot of good capital allocation. Steve is more of an expert on that. He's been researching it longer 
Um, and if you want to know how they work, uh, we go over it for about, what, five to seven minutes or maybe even longer. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed the Boston Omaha talk as well. And then, honestly, like Steve, just in general, does a very good job of simplifying business models. Um, and it's like that, that is a skill that is hard to find because a lot of people kind of complicate them. He makes it very easy for everyone to understand. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Give it a listen. All right, today we are welcomed by Steve Symington. He is a lead advisor at Seven Investing. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, so why don't we get started just by letting you introduce yourself. How'd you get interested in investing and then why did you decide to end up joining uh, the Seven Investing team? Yeah, so um, I guess my sort of genesis as an investor, it started for me kind of once I had a little money to put to work in college, really. Um, that was maybe what, 17, 18 years ago now when I'm, yeah, which seems bizarre. Where'd the time go, right? And I was a computer science and math guy then. Uh, I always appreciated the power of compounding, uh, but low yield savings accounts, you know, stuff like bonds and CDs, um, they weren't really all that compelling to me. And I, I wanted something I could provide, um, greater long-term returns from, you know, what little money I did have at the time to put to work. Uh, But my interest in researching individual equities uh, was really spurred, I guess, my first job after college. It was a small software company straight out of college. I actually told some of that story uh, in a Twitter feed I can, I can share later, but uh, um, really I, I joined this tiny little company that was acquired a couple of times, ultimately ended up being part of a massive conglomerate uh, with the 401k that allowed me the option of investing in individual stocks. And uh, that was a lot more exciting because, well, 401k had a, a fair bit more money than your taxable brokerage account did. And uh, you, know, you could actually kind of play around a little bit. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do push back on the idea that, you know, to make money, you have to, you have, to have money. But, um, you know, it, it certainly helps. But uh, I do think people should start uh, low. Uh, you know, if with as little as you have, I think it adds up quickly. But um, as far as joining Seven Investing, uh, I I worked uh, for the Motley Fool for seven years. Uh, I wrote, oh geez, um, almost eight thousand articles for them. Uh, it was a job I sort of wow. stumbled into initially, uh, and I helped them manage multiple real money portfolios uh, toward you know near the second half of that tenure, and uh, it was it was really a fun job. Um, you know, I just, I figured out pretty quickly that I was a much better investor than I was um, a 
a software engineer. <laughs> and uh, it, and that's, I think, part of the beauty of investing is, uh, you know, given enough time. And, you know, for me, it's nice because I had the luxury of spending seven years literally focusing on nothing but investing. Um, but uh, I think that's the beauty is that anyone um, can get good at this, um, you, you know, with the time and inclination. And uh, uh, it's so openly accessible uh, to somebody who wants to invest, especially in today's day and age. So, um, but joining in seven investing, I guess, I worked for Simon really closely for most of those seven years. And um, I, I really respected uh, him both as an analyst and, and really just a decent human being. Uh, bringing Austin uh, Lieberman and Matthew Cochran into the mix um, really just solidified that choice. And really, uh, in the end, there was no way I was going to let the chance to work with with that talented team slip through my fingers. So, yeah, yeah I mean, we've we've had all those guys on the show, and we enjoy them as well. And it seems like an awesome team there. So, yeah, it's it, and it's just really exciting to be able to to the prospect of building a platform from scratch that could positively change the investing landscape for individual investors like us uh, was just, it's, it's so exciting. And uh, I'm really, really um, happy and giddy to, to see what it can become over the next you know, several years. Yeah. So for all the listeners, the way we're going to kind of structure the interview is we have three companies that we're going to talk about specifically, do some deep dives on them. And then we have uh, a few more broad questions. Um, but those three companies are Boston, Omaha, Nutanix, and Disney. So I'm going to go through Boston, Omaha with Steve. Um, so why don't you introduce it? What is Boston, Omaha? Um, and they don't actually sell anything. Um, they're not consumer facing or anything like that. So what's so attractive about their type of business model? Yeah. So Boston, Omaha is, is really intriguing to me because it's this relatively small financial holding company. And uh, it's, it's very similar to Berkshire Hathaway in uh, it, in that it implements a, a three tiered approach to building shareholder value. So uh, you know, if you're familiar with Berkshire, you know, they have um, they have their insurance side of the business. So like Geico general reinsurance um, Boston Omaha uh, has, and we'll, talk about this more soon, but they have their own insurance uh, business as well. They have uh, an investing portfolio. So they actually take some of their capital and invest it in individual stocks. And, uh, and really third, uh, that third, I guess, part of the business is a supplementary group of acquired businesses. So insurance, uh, an investing portfolio and groups of acquired businesses that can really just spur uh, their financial uh, health. So uh, it's no coincidence, I guess, um, that Boston Omaha is following Berkshire's lead. You hear a lot about mini Berkshires and, you know, companies that can actually um, take this approach and turn it into value. But uh, co-CEO Alex Rosen Buffett, Alex Rosen Buffett, uh, Alex, Alex Buffett Rosen, there we go, uh, is actually Warren Buffett's great grandnephew. And uh, he knows the, the the famous investor well. He, he essentially grew up watching Warren Buffett do his thing. I, I think uh, might have been back in 2009. He he made headlines just kind of you know in in the background by proposing to his wife at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And um, it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, you know, Warren Buffett has gone on record to say that. Uh, he has a great mind and, uh, you know, he, he's not involved. Warren Buffett isn't involved in Boston Omaha's business, but he basically said, you know, Hey, 
oh, I, I, I'd bet on this guy if, if I could, but really for, for Berkshire, it's not, you know, if, if they were going to invest in Boston Omaha or help that it's, it's just sort of a drop in the bucket for them. They're really tiny company. Um, right. and, oh, that's uh, yeah. interesting. Did not know that. Um, so we'll go through each of their individual businesses. And the first one that they have is Link Media Holdings, um, which is a billboard business. So what is so attractive about billboards? And then um, will you talk about the difference between static and digital and which ones are going to be more profitable for them down the road? Um, you know, it's funny because I kind of, I, I smile as, as I hear that question because it's one of those things you know I've, I've seen boston omaha described as as just another billboard company and billboards seem like they're they're boring and why would you do this and um and so it, it's sort of funny because uh businesses like berkshire and uh boston omaha and there's another one card called markel uh these sort of berkshire style holding companies um they, they like to find boring businesses uh, that tend to earn favorable returns on equity capital and uh, billboards in particular uh, meet that to a T. Um, they, they earn favorable returns on equity. Uh, the cash flow from their initial return can really grow without requiring significant incremental capital as well. Um, and, you know, established players in this billboard space, they, they tend to benefit from supply constraints. So uh, there's only so much room you can put these billboards and um, you're not going to find, you know, it, it's hard to muscle into that market unless you can really acquire your way into it. And that's what Boston Omaha did over the last couple of years. Uh, they spent a lot of money buying thousands and thousands of billboards. And it's this highly fragmented market that's owned by a bunch of little tiny players and often you know, these guys just want to, you know, sell their business and, and, uh, and, you know, they're ready to move on or retire or whatever it is. And Boston Omaha basically keeps their eyes peeled to snag these deals at whenever the price is right. Now they don't buy, you know, acquire for the sake of finding acquisitive growth. They find it, uh, when the price is attractive. And, um, so really, uh, I guess three things for, for link media, uh, you know, favorable returns on, uh, equity capital, uh, from that initial return, cash flow can really grow over time without requiring additional capital. And, uh, and that growth can really endure over the long term uh, as demand continues to grow and supply constraints kind of stay behind. So, yeah. And then as far as static versus digital, which ones um, are they pivoting more towards? Yeah. So um, you'd think that digital billboards, you know, digital is the future and everything, but, and, and it might well be. Um, but I guess there's a couple advantages to each. Now in Boston, Omaha's case, they, they own, I think there's, there's 3000 structures right now at the end of 2019 that they own. And there's 5,600 advertising faces on those structures. Right. And, um, but only 63 of those faces are actually digital. So the vast majority for Boston, Omaha are static. You know, someone just slaps up a, uh, a big, you know, banner basically on this, on this billboard. Now as for the financial impact, it, it helps that static billboards um, tend to outlast the depreciation schedules. Uh, digital structures don't. Um, now a meaningful source, uh, I guess, um, of the, you know, that you can actually find, I guess that's the one of the other benefits of digital is that you can find additional uh, supply 
uh, of advertising faces by swapping static billboards for digital faces. Um, so you can, you know, cycle through seven or eight ad spots in a minute. But uh, uh, that also means that you could, you could overestimate your, the revenue that you could uh, potentially produce. It's a lot harder to predict, especially if there's say an advertising shortage. Now that's something that, you know, we'll probably see in the, the next, you know, maybe the next quarter. Or so um, is that, you know, the demand for billboards might fall as people kind of like tighten their purse strings um, as far as advertising goes. But um, that's something I guess you just have to keep in mind. So um, static versus uh, digital is interesting, but they both come with their pros and cons. Hmm, interesting. Um, and now the second business that they operate is this insurance type that you talked about. Um, but more specifically, it's surety bonds. Uh, and now a lot of people don't know what surety bonds are, um, including sure. myself until I read up on it a little bit. <laughs> so you kind of describe what surety bonds are and how they differ from typical insurance underwriting. Yeah. So Boston Omaha, I guess um, when it comes to their insurance side of the group, it's, it's held under uh, a business called general indemnity group. Uh, they, they refer to it often as GIG. Um, but surety, uh, surety is interesting. So think of, you know, I guess one big example is, is say a contractor when they say they're licensed and bonded. Right. And that's somebody who is, um, who has a surety bond to basically ensure that they will do that work. And someone could, uh, if they don't, you know, go after the insurer in order to make sure that everything is actually you know, made right. So uh, there's also, um, I guess, another thing to that end. Well, actually, let's talk before, I guess, the current uh, state of that industry. Um, what am I thinking here? Boston Omaha uh, released an update that basically said that uh, that they've temporarily suspended issuance of some surety bonds. And, uh, you know, another surety bond might be um, uh, like a bond that guarantees rental payments by consumers in private businesses. Uh, so they might have the surety bond pulled out that says, all right, if this tenant doesn't pay rent, then I'm going to turn to that surety bond. You know, I'm going to get an insurance claim that actually covers my you know, backside. So if you see, you know, and would probably will, um, I guess another thing, you know, if you see claims by landlords due to, you know, tenants defaulting on their leases, um, that's another thing, you know, that surety bonds can help cover, um, in a normal market, you know, and, and that's something, I guess, Boston Omaha manages their insurance side really conservatively. Um, hmm. so they, um, the, the beautiful thing about surety bonds is that the broader surety industry, averages a roughly 30% loss ratio, right? Which is really attractive. Uh, you know, auto and home insurance tend to average loss ratios of more than 70%. So surety bonds are generally a lot more predictable. <clears throat> and uh, they, they also uh, provide higher agent commissions between 30 and 40%. That's more than triple the commission that you'll see uh, from agents in the auto insurance business. Um, so, you know, really a lot more money tends to fall into the pockets of surety insurers than it does for home and auto. So uh, scaling, you know, you can scale um, on a much smaller scale and still make a significant amount of money there if you are smart about the way uh, you handle your underwriting. So um, surety is interesting because uh, really in the U.S., um, actually, you know, there's, there's a $6 billion market for surety insurance in the U.S. right now. I think globally it's closer to $16 billion, but 
um, for a company like Boston Omaha, where I'm not sure where their market cap stood 400 million, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, you know, surety yeah. insurance uh, provides a massive opportunity um, for them to, to scale up and, uh, and turn toward, you know, pivot really hard toward sustained profitable growth um, going forward. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you don't really think about sure, the surety bond business much. It sounds like it's almost insurance on insurance, if that makes any sense. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but the, they also made an acquisition this year. It was a pretty big acquisition called Airbeam. Um, mm-hmm. So what does Airbeam <clears throat> That was uh, actually just in March. Yeah. Really? Um, and then once you describe what they do, it has to do with fiber optic cables, I believe. So why do people even need fiber optic cables to begin with? <laughs> so Airbeam, um, it's, it's a regional broadband provider. I think they've got, I think, 7,000 customers in Southern Arizona. Um, so basically, you know, broadband internet makes sense, right? It's a, a relatively uh, predictable business. The demand's only going to increase. Um, but right now, Airbeam, the most of Airbeam's um, service is actually in uh, fixed wire, wireless broadband um, service. So most of their customers are actually getting uh, wireless internet from Airbeam, right? With, hence the name. But um, so they're, they're taking a lot of their cash flows, though, and they're investing it in fiber to the home infrastructure. So uh, you can end up being like a fiber internet provider. So um, I guess this, it's a business that's uniquely capable of supporting um, exponential growth in data usage that I think we're really almost certain to experience uh, in the coming years. So there, you know, you can look up any number of, of ridiculous statistics on how much more data people are using um, basically as they access the internet between streaming video and, and on and on. But uh, most, you know, connections that actually come to consumers homes now uh, come in the form of like copper wire, uh, including coaxial cable. So, I mean, DSL um, it's, it's a, you know, you have copper, um, lines that actually support this and uh, cable the structures you know can support a little you know a fair bit more broadband but you know when you're talking about something you know data usage growing uh, to the effect of 30 percent you know compound annual growth rates uh, eventually you you're going to have to pivot over to something that uh, allows for a wider um, really a wider channel that you can pass more data through. So, and, uh, and fiber is going to be one of those channels, um, barring some other sort of innovation that allows them to handle that. So, uh, Boston Omaha recognized this trend and it, you'll, you can you know, read up on Airbeam in their, their latest annual letter, uh, which by the way is a fantastic read. Uh, it reads a lot like, you know, Warren Buffett's letters to shareholders and, uh, you know, again, no coincidence there, but, um, they, believe that there is opportunity for them to uh, basically gobble up uh, these other smaller regional, similarly positioned um, fiber to the home providers. And, uh, and, and it could be uh, basically they're calling it their, their third line of business. Um, And I, you know, I think part of the beauty of Boston Omaha is that, you know, they have this optionality. Uh, They have, you know, a lot of cash. I think it was somewhere around, 90 or a hundred million dollars or so. Um, 
and uh, really, uh, they have the option to just continue either making these acquisitions or reinvesting in their existing businesses or taking some of that uh, and investing in publicly traded equities. But a lot of optionality. And I think, you know, one of the exciting things about a company like this is that in the next 10 years or so, it's probably going to look a lot different, uh, both in the scale of their existing businesses and some of those like little surprising acquisitions like Airbnb, like, oh, now they now they're in fiber broadband. So. Yeah. I mean, they really are not sexy businesses by any means. It's no. billboards, insurance, and uh, fiber optic cables. So Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, like a cigar company that's pivoting over to, you know, blockchain and, right. and uh, yeah. Bitcoin. Like they, they're, they just want to find businesses that are profitable and predictable and, uh, and really have just, yeah, attractive economics. So, And then in terms of a holding company versus a company that actually sells products to customers, how much more important is management when you look uh, at it? Crucial. Now, um, that's something, you know, I guess that's both a risk and an opportunity. Um, but as far as holding companies go, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to um, understate the influence that uh, good management has on any business, but holding companies, I, I think in, in like Boston Omaha's case in particular, uh, Rosick and Peterson, uh, are, they're exceptionally talented capital allocators. Uh, I think they have the right temperament, uh, which is a huge um, piece of both management and, and investing, but the right temperament to succeed. Uh, I think they ended uh, What's, uh, I'll be very curious. I guess one thing to keep an eye on is, is how they invest. It's kind of, it, it's mildly frustrating as an investor when they're still really small, because um, one of the, one of the fun parts of, of looking at companies that run equity portfolios is that you can look at their 13 F forms that they file with the SEC and you can see what their portfolio is made of yeah. at the end of any given quarter. Now, they're not required to fill a four, uh, file a, a 13F until their portfolio reaches $100 million. And I think last quarter was like $54 million. And I'm sure they took a hit at the end of the quarter. So it was probably smaller than that. But uh, they did say in their annual report that they, they invested another $20 million into publicly traded equities um, you know, subsequent to the end of 2019. And I can almost guarantee you it was right around that March 23rd plunge <laughs> when they did that. So I, I really want to know. Uh, what they what they invest in, but I think yeah, again that plays into management and their skill as capital allocators. Yeah, it sounds like they're really adopting that they had a Berkshire model in terms of being patient and then being aggressive when you find good opportunities. Yes. Um, right. Well, I'll transition to uh, Nutanix, uh, more traditional growth stock uh, software as a service, cloud based. Um, and I think a lot of people that look at this are confused on what Nutanix does. So can you describe just basically try to do a simple overview of uh, what they do and how they work within their industry? Yeah, this might be as hard as a pivot as we could have possibly found from Boston, Omaha. Yeah. So we, we go from, you know, these boring-ish businesses over to Nutanix, which is a leader in what they call hyper-converged infrastructure. So... Um, I think, you know, I was, we were chatting uh, with the best way to communicate uh, what Nutanix does. And Simon and I were talking about this and, and he sort of said, um, I like the way he put it, that it's, it's sort of a digital traffic cop that manages applications within data center resources they require. It sort of helps everything run smoothly as far as 
network infrastructure goes. So um, what's, and that's still confusing, I guess, when you think about it, but uh, the way, if, if you're familiar at all with like old legacy network infrastructures, so think about enterprises, like enter, big enterprise customers, they have these big you know, networks that they manage and uh, there's three tiers to those networks. There's compute, you know, computing like processing power, storage. So you have this big server that handles nothing but, you know, backing up fi files every night. And then there's networking tiers. So uh, they handle all of the network connections, you know, between your offices. You might have, you know, a bunch of switches and all these crazy things. But these old legacy networks were built sort of for the internet of old. And uh, they're these data center requirements are evolving and increasing at a rapid pace. And uh, the pace of, they've, they're reaching the point, especially as companies need to kind of adjust their network infrastructures to, to work more effectively with cl the cloud. You know, I mean, nobody's going to argue that cloud computing isn't a massive opportunity, but as they pivot over, they realize, ugh, my network infrastructure isn't ready for this. Like my old compute storage networking, this three tier thing is clunky and it's built for the way we used to do things. So um, Nutanix's goal, it's a software based interface that basically um, combines these three tiers uh, hence that hyper-converged infrastructure description. Uh, it combines these tiers into a, a seamless solution um, that basically makes you know managing this network infrastructure kind of invisible to the user. They want to make it as easy and as as just seamless as possible uh, for um, enterprise networks to be implemented. So this, I hope that makes more sense, but. Yeah, it makes it makes some sense. I think something that would help people uh, understand where they fit into the industry is talking about who their partners are. So kind of who they work with, who their uh, customers are, and then who are some of their competitors. Yeah, so um, you'll see Nutanix um, kind of partnering with, uh, I guess they used to, um, they used to offer their own sort of hardware solutions as well to kind of support this hyper-converged infrastructure. But um, now they've found that, you know, pivoting over to like a software and subscription model, and we'll talk about that more, I think, in a minute is, is going to be important. But um, so one of their biggest partners is, or their biggest competitors, let's start there, is VMware. Um, actually, uh, VMware, uh, whose majority shareholder is Dell Technologies, if you're familiar with the structure, uh, okay. they are offering their own hyper-converged infrastructure solutions. It's this really fast-growing market that is, uh, you know, I guess, zooming out a little bit. Uh, the, you know, the legacy infrastructure market is worth about $100 billion annually right now. And hyper-converged infrastructure is worth about $5 billion of that. So a uh, pretty small slice, and everybody's competing uh, to grab that slice, especially as it grows. Uh, but VMware, I think, is, is probably its biggest competitive threat uh, with, you know, its partnership with Dell Technologies. And it's, it's almost ironic because Dell Technologies is also a longtime Nutanix partner. Um, and that might be fading a little bit here. Um, but Nutanix also partners with companies like HP, um, HP Enterprise, and, and uh, to, to basically take their solutions and put them on um, servers that are sold, you know, the, the hardware part is handled by someone else now. So, um, what's really interesting about Nutanix though, is they already have, um, uh, 
a, a huge customer base. I think they ended last quarter with like 16,000 customers uh, and 97% customer retention rates. And, and these are, they're a combination of small, medium and enormous enterprise customers. I think they already count 70 members of the Ford 100, Forbes 100, uh, 880 of the global 2000. And uh, I think, what did they say? couple dozen customers who are spending over 20 million a year on their solutions. And um, so they really have um, sort of this head start uh, as an industry leader uh, that I think should help them uh, where these other companies, you know, they, it's validation for their platform that they have such a huge piece um, of the world's largest companies already. Yeah. Well, I think that helps explain it more. Do they work with AWS Azure and the other cloud partners, or is that something completely different? So, um, yes and no. Uh, they are, you know, their their solutions are sort of platform agnostic, as far as cloud platforms go. I mean, you could say uh, they they will help that infra- help you manage your your infrastructure regardless of which cloud platform you're working with. Um, so that's part of the beauty is that. You know, they don't force you to um, to use uh, the cloud provider that you want. It's okay. it's they they will work with all of them. So, all right, that makes sense. Uh, okay, so they've had over the last few years, they've been transitioning to a more software-based subscription, kind of gone straight for the SaaS model that's very popular. Mm-hmm. That's changed the accounting a lot. How has it changed the accounting and made it seem worse than it <laughs> actually is on a cash flow basis? So. The I guess for perspective, um, I think last quarter, uh, subscription billings represented like seventy nine percent of Nutanix's total. So that was uh, that was a lot lower uh, when they started this transition. Uh, they really piv- started pivoting toward like a software based subscription model about a year and a half ago. Um, they did have software based subscriptions before, but they were a much smaller chunk and they said, okay, this is how we're going to run the business. Now it's much more uh, profitable, but pivoting over to subscriptions and away from this legacy, uh, either license based where you had a term license or hardware, um, pivoting away from that meant that revenue needs to be recognized subscription revenue specifically on a ratable basis over the term of subscriptions. So uh, reported revenue growth and profitability appear to be much weaker than they actually are. And uh, Nutanix, um, since they started pivoting harder toward the subscription software based model uh, has been successful in that they have pivoted faster than they expected uh, but that also meant a disconnect between analyst models. You know, they, they expect revenue to be higher because, uh, you know, you don't have these ratable um, revenue recognition requirements with the old model. So as they pivot harder and faster toward um, subscriptions, their revenue growth looks weaker than it actually is and their profitability as well. Um, and I think uh, an impo- uh, a good model for that uh, how how they're actually doing this is to look at the way Adobe did this uh, back in, I was actually writing about Adobe through the course of this back in like 2014. Um, as Adobe transitioned to the cloud and subscriptions, they had the same thing. They just repeatedly disappointed Wall Street every time they'd release earnings because they'd say, whoops, we, you know, our subscription services are so much more popular. 
than we thought they'd be. And our revenue looks like it stinks right now. But then uh, as soon as the, the fruits of that transition became more clear and sort of the, the radical revenue, revenue recognition, say that 10 times fast, actually <laughs> became, <laughs> became uh, more clear than, than uh, it's sort of like Wall Street catches up and says, ooh, you're actually more attractive. And uh, as an aside, uh, Nutanix's um, CEO, uh, Deerish Pandey, is, uh, is on Adobe's board. So uh, he's actually purposefully using that as a model for what they can do. But... Wow, that's interesting. So if we go broader picture, if we look ahead five years, uh, because mm -hmm. for someone like us, who I guess doesn't really understand as well how Nutanix's business works, what would it look like five years from now if you said the plan they went through or the plan they had you know, executed perfectly? Yeah, so that's I love that that you asked about that five year time frame. Now at Seven Investing, we focus on longer term, um, longer term horizons. Really, we're looking three, five, ten years out. And uh, if for Nutanix specifically, um, I think in five years we're going to see virtually all of their, you know, subscription billings. You know, they they have come from. Um, the, the, the subscription billings and, you know, they've, they've essentially completed that transition five years from now. It'll, I think it'll happen a lot faster than that. Um, actually Nutanix, I think has set a goal of reaching 3 billion in subscription billings by the end of fiscal 2021. So what is that another year and a half? And I think right now their subscription billings for this fiscal year are supposed to be closer to oh, 1.6, 1.7 billion. So uh, I think we'll see um, a significantly larger uh, subscription revenue stream, revenue stream and uh, you'll see them continue to take a bigger piece of that $100 billion legacy uh, network infrastructure market uh, and really hopefully um, fend off uh, competitors like VMware in the process because this is a fast growing market. There's lots of competition, but there is multi, you know, room for multiple people, uh, companies to succeed in the process. But uh, Nutanix believes its execution uh, as evidenced by its customer retention rates are, are much greater. So you should in five years see a bigger piece of this growing pie and uh, virtually all subscriptions. And uh, hopefully by then Wall Street's kind of caught up. <laughs> yeah speed. they start understanding how the uh subscriptions are working yeah because I, I think it's been a frustrating stock since well, i think their ipo was what 2017 and uh i think it's been a frustrating stock for people to watch so far because of those sort of disappointments and the disconnect between their subscription transition and their revenue growth and and uh, it's like oh nutanix disappointed again and uh and i think people are going to catch on um so that's uh that's kind of you know i should and hope that they have caught on by then and one number to watch out for is the billings number, right? Because that mm -hmm. takes into more of actually what they're getting billed for versus yeah. what they're actually recognizing on the revenue line. Yes. Yeah, so billings are a, a good metric to help you uh, better predict what the revenue is going to look like uh, in, in the coming quarters rather than what it actually looks like right now. So that's why they focus so hard on billings. It says, Hey, this is, this is where we're at and, and we're not doing bad, but I do think we're going to see, um, you know, in the next quarter or two, especially with the COVID-19, you know, situation, we're going to see some enterprise customers, you know, probably is particularly in the middle tier, uh, medium sized tier, they're going to tighten their purse strings too. Uh, and um, actually, I think um, Pandy, the CEO, um, 
he likened it to when Nutanix was founded in uh, 2009, kind of in the grips of the financial panic. He said everybody kind of had tight purse strings then, uh, but it took a couple of quarters. And once they sort of realized uh, what that the, the world was going to be fine, uh, then they started spending again. But uh, I think you know it could we could see a little pullback. Uh, but the stock's really been punished hard uh, in the meantime, anyway, because of concerns over that. So that's part of the reason I think it's intriguing right now. So okay, the last business that we're going to talk about specifically is Disney, um, right. who's had a, a little, little bit of a rough go here. Um, uh, surrounding coronavirus. So why don't you talk about some of the complications that we're seeing with Disney right now, thanks to coronavirus, because they obviously do a lot of different things. Um, so what's really getting hurt? Disney is, uh, it's hard not to love Disney. Um, but they, they're facing this strange double-edged sword today. So uh, on one hand, you know, it's it's been widely publicized that, you know, ESPN's getting hurt on the back of a lack of live sports. You know, they have this cord cutting phenomenon that's hurting their, their media business. Um, and then you got your parks and resorts and your cruises, uh, that are shut down completely. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you see this insane momentum for Disney plus, uh, and I, I think it was, it was fantastic. Like the timing was stunning from disney and they could have they couldn't have foreseen it but launching disney plus what six months ago and uh imagine what you know how much worse the stock would have gotten crushed if uh if they hadn't had disney plus in place with actually some momentum so i think they just i think three months ago their subscriber base stood at like 22 million which was also you know already faster than they thought they were hoping to reach 60 to 90 million customers and sustain profitability within like five years um, but Disney plus, I think is one of those underappreciated, uh, or maybe not underappreciated. I think it's maybe one of the reasons Disney hasn't gotten crushed harder than it is, but, um, that's, you know, the, the tough part that they're dealing with is, is such a consumer facing business that relies on people, you know, getting out and visiting their, their parks and cruises and everything to, you know, movies and, uh, movie theaters and, oh my gosh, there's so many working parts. It's, it's almost scary, but. Yeah, the well, I guess their biggest profitability uh, engine is the theme parks, and then within that segment is cruise ships, and those are the ones that are probably going to be coming back very late. So, mm-hmm. when do you see the parks hitting full capacity again, and how much, if like before they get back to a hundred percent capacity, how much will that hurt uh, the bottom line? How much money will they be burning? Um. Oh geez. I, I I don't need an exact number, but like what I know it's, I, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to predict exactly when they're going to come back, but I think it's telling already um, that as people ease social distancing um, initiatives that um, they're already talking, there were a bunch of articles, um, you know, there about uh, how, uh, Florida business groups and, you know, we're talking about this. It was like a three phase structure for opening up Disney's parks again, uh, limiting attendance and, uh, they won't commit to a timeline, understandably. So, but, but they're already talking about how they're going to reopen and they've run a lot of polls on how, um, how comfortable people are. And, um, there were a couple, um, 
couple polls that have returned already that said uh, anywhere between 60 and 70% of consumers said, if Disney's comfortable enough opening their parks, I'm comfortable enough going right away. And uh, I think that's, that's surprising in a good way um, that, you know, 60 to you know two and three people basically are saying, yeah, I'm fine going back if Disney thinks it's all right. Um, but I, you know, I think they'll, I think what we'll see is, is they'll open, you know, half of a park and they'll kind of start from there and, uh, engage it. You know, there's risk because, uh, they can just have to shut it back down again. If easing social distancing restrictions and stay at home orders results in a spike in the number of cases again, and they might just have to go right again. But I think over the long term they'll be fine. And Disney has, you know, massive cash hoard, um, that should really ensure uh, that they can weather uh, this pandemic. And uh, I, I think they'll be just fine in the end, but I, I am, you know, watching them closely because uh, I, I, it's a stock I think I would buy, you know, if we're, we're dropping another 10, 20 bucks a share before we get there. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those people who's tapping the buy button. So. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a sticky situation because if you open back up, to the whole park and you get two thirds of the capacity, you're, you're probably burning money. So, yeah. you know, you really have to do it the right way. You do. And I think, I think the initial openings, you know, they're talking about opening half the park then opening two thirds of the park and then getting it all back up and running. I think if anything, um, it's a matter of, um, getting the public to be comfortable with the idea of visiting Disney world again, you know, right. or going, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I could say as much about the cruise industry. So the, the publicity there has been st- uh, just like gag yeah. inducing, but um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think uh, these consumer facing businesses, you know, it may require burning some cash in the meantime, but I think that uh, I, I think they'll, I think they're smarter uh, than people give them credit for. Uh, as far as that goes and you know having Iger kind of come back uh in, in order to help manage through this this transition um is is also a, a great benefit um yeah in, in the process so yeah we're big we've we've been big fans of Iger and um anyone that read his book probably likes his story um but in terms of Disney plus you're, you're right the timing was basically impeccable um and now they're competing with Netflix. And I think they're probably the second in terms of customer base, the second largest, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Do you think that they'll be able to compete with their existing IP? I mean, they obviously have very valuable intellectual property mm-hmm. and they have a strong brand, but, or do you think they're going to have to increase content spend in order to keep up and keep the retention numbers strong? I, I, I think the answer is that I'm not sure they have to compete that way. I don't think um, I don't think it's a Disney or Netflix proposition. Like personally, I'm I'm perfectly content keeping them both. Uh, and I think they, you know both are they're such inexpensive services uh, with their own unique value in and of themselves. I think there's more than enough room for everybody to to kind of win in this situation. So I think it's telling you know when you see Netflix with their absolutely absurd quarter uh, that they just posted, even as Disney Plus, you know gained 28 million subscribers in three months and Netflix kind of just shrugged like, yeah, we're doing fine too. Uh, but I, I do think at the same time, both Disney and Netflix will increase content spend. 
so, you know, you're going to see, you know, both uh, not only on the Disney plus side, but on the Hulu side, which Disney, you know, has a controlling stake in thanks to their insane acquisition of, of Fox that $71 billion they spent there. Uh, Cause they have that controlling stake in Hulu that they got, but yeah. So uh, I, I think they both win really. And I think Disney plus uh, not, not at the expense of Netflix. I think they're going to just continue to attract new customers with exclusive content, you know, like Mandalorian and, and uh, not as much to fend off competing services, but really just grow their own. So uh, if they just keep their heads down and say, you know, look what we offer. I think people will say, Hey, I want that too. Right. Yeah. Especially with that price point. I think they definitely wanted to play catch up, uh, so to speak, since they were launching so much later uh, with yeah. that, you can get it for what, six to seven bucks. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think six ninety nine or something. It's crazy. And, uh, and, and the, the funny part is, you know, when they're talking about, uh, when they first unveiled Disney plus way, you know, last year, they were saying, all right, you know, we want to reach 60 to 90 million people within five years. And that should allow us to have a you know, profitable business. And we're already darn near there. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not long before we see, uh, that scale actually start to meaningfully contribute to Disney's top and bottom lines. So, yeah. Uh, well, all right, let's transition before we hit the wrap up questions. We wanted to talk one segment about, uh, companies that a lot of people, uh, follow and care about, and that is big tech. Uh, we've been talking about whether they are immune from a recession, uh, right. because they've stayed so high, um, and they've outperformed the market even during this dip and recovery. Uh, yeah. Do you think they are immune or do you think they'll get hurt and then come out stronger? Or do you think, you know, they're just as vulnerable as every other business that has been crushed, um, at least from a demand or, you know, perspective, from a revenue perspective uh, during this recession? I'd say they're not immune and they're quarterly, you know, like the quarterly reports from Facebook and Google uh, in particular uh, illustrated that. Um, they, they saw a really steep drop off and a lot of companies are reporting the steep drops in advertising revenue in March, but a stabilization in April. So I don't think, you know, <laughs> when you talk about Google, uh, you know, or Apple even, uh, with, you know, Apple, I think has more than 80 billion in cash and they're still buying back shares and, and, uh, and then you have, you know, Google, gosh, how much you know, they have on their balance sheet, more than a hundred billion. And, uh, Facebook is kind of in a similar spot, but um, these what's what's really interesting and part of the reason these companies popped last week is because they said, "Oops, steep drop off," like we expected, like everybody expected. Uh, but the pleasant surprise was when they saw that ad revenue come bouncing back, or at least stabilize. Um, so I think they will be able to better weather uh, this storm than a lot of your smaller players. Uh, but I think that might also create um, some opportunity for the smaller players that get hurt worse um, and then, you know, can recover as the, the broader economy does. So uh, I guess, long story short, big tech, not immune, but much better position because most of them have ridiculous amounts of cash on their balance sheet that they can, they can weather this from. So Right. And it seems like Amazon's the one that's kind of what you would describe as anti-fragile uh, maybe uh, mm. because they are actually doing better within the crisis just with the specificity of what yeah. this is but then without you know all the other ones even though they will get hurt since they have that they're one of the like only companies I mean all, 
90% of the market seems like it has less cash than it has like debt. And it's going to have a lot of troubles with having to finance themselves. So those companies are going to be, you know, able to just kind of sit and not be worried. And then when they come out on the other side, um, everything's going to look pretty. They're going to have a lot more cash. Maybe they'll buy back a ton of stock. And if a lot of pe- other competitors fail, uh, they're just going to get bigger and bigger. Yep. Big gets strong, get stronger. Winners keep on winning. Uh, I, I think that's going to hold through through all of this. So, Okay, our last two wrap-up questions. Um, first one here, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? One financial saying um, that I disagree with. I go back and forth uh, on a couple different uh, concepts here, but I think one thing that, that, I, that I often push back against is the idea that our markets are efficient the stock market in particular, uh, you know, so often people say, and, and, and it's true most of the time where you have like, Hey, this stock is being crushed for a reason, or this stock is overpriced for a reason, you know? Uh, but I think that also is the crux of our ability as stock market analysts to pick market beating stocks. I think people who are good at choosing um, and recognizing where the market is inefficient because it's not efficient all the time. Um, much of the time it is, but yeah, when they say the market always is always right, the market's always efficient. I, I'd push back really hard on that because I think the best analysts are the people who can recognize where the market is getting it wrong and the market gets it wrong a lot more often than you think. So. Yeah, and if you look at the exam, the recent example of uh, the Zoom video versus the Zoom technologies, uh, where that ticker had no nothing to do with Zoom video, and it was skyrocketing a thousand percent because it was a penny stock with like ten million dollars in float. No. I don't think you could argue that that was very efficient. That was not efficient. No. Yeah, n- not not really at all. All right, last yeah. question here: What is one piece of advice you would have for anyone starting out in the investing world? One thing I. I... I think is, is still a lot more, I feel like I, I answer this question, you know, every week, but um, don't be scared by high share prices. And, you know, if you could see me now, you'd see me putting high in, in finger quotes. Um, But when you see a company whose stock trades at 200, 800, 1500, you know, $2,000 a share, that doesn't necessarily mean that company is so much more expensive than all these, you know, exciting penny stocks you're looking at or stocks that trade under five bucks a share taken alone. Uh, I, I think people need to, you know, novice investors need to study up a little bit and realize that share price means almost nothing. It's basically just a function of how many slices a company's chosen to split their pie into. Uh, they've issued this many shares and this is the price per share. But you know, I, I think a more valuable exercise is to look at, the size of the company and their markets relative to the opportunity they're working to seize. And, uh, you know, in today's world of fractional share trading, you know, there's so many platforms out there that offer fractional share trading where you can say, I want to invest, you know, hundred bucks in, in alphabet stock, the parent company of Google, and that'll get you, you know, an eighth of a share. Uh, you can do that now and you don't have to have, you know, $900 to buy a, a share of alphabet. Uh, so I, I think the, the, the better thing to do is look at your investments in terms of dollars. 
uh, especially now that the platforms are there and you don't have to buy whole shares. You know, dozens of these, I can name so many seemingly expensive stocks that trade, you know, thousand bucks a share. I would much rather buy than other companies that are trading at under $10 a share. And that has nothing to do with their per share price. So uh, that's, that's something I think that people really need to focus on. Um, share price means nothing. Right. For really novice investors, I think sometimes it's hard to grasp the idea of share structure mm-hmm. and how it's divvied up. So that's important. Um, thank you, Steve. That was our last question. So thanks for coming onto the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun. Okay. Welcome back in. Thank you once again to Steve for coming on the show. Very much enjoyed it, but we have our hot water now. Mm-hmm. You want me to kick things off? Cause mine's all Elon centric. Uh, you can go ahead. I love, uh, you know, I love a good Musk talk. Okay. Uh, Elon's new child is in hot water. Uh, I don't know the name. Uh, I don't think anyone does. This has got to be the dumbest name ever. And I'm, I feel bad for the kid. Yeah. Listen, I know he probably won't go to public school and he probably won't get bullied like most normal kids with that kind of name, but come on, this is not inspiring or unique or any of that stuff. Like he's named after like 20 different things in his first name. Look, I mean, I don't want to tell someone how to parent, but it's tough. They should really give him a, a, give him a basic name. Like, like like me. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. You should definitely name him Ryan. Uh, But the uh, names are tough. When you're a kid, you do not want a weird name. Um, it's just, it's really, really, it sucks if you have a weird name. Let me, uh, let me give you a hypothetical. All right. He goes to prison. Let's oh, say, let's say when, he gets arrested. When, when he goes to prison. Or Yeah. Okay. We're obviously bearish. So let, let's say he went to prison. He gets arrested tomorrow for defying Alameda County's rules. Um, suddenly his kids got to go to public school. That's going to be hell. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel bad for him. I don't know. Yeah. I just hope they call him something different than XAE 12. Um, yeah. Uh, Alameda County is also in hot water. Am I saying that right? Alameda? No idea. Bay uh, Area County. Yeah. Whatever. Because Elon is officially above the law. Um, yes. I think it looks like he's going to be getting out of this if I had to take a guess. So, uh, yeah, he always you, does. If you have a business in Alameda County, open up. Yeah, open up. Yeah, it's not like the cases have – they actually have the worst cases, case numbers in the entire Bay Area. So they should probably be the last ones to open up. But that's neither here nor there, and I'm not a county official. But, you know, I just hope that uh, the rule of law can be, I don't know, like followed in our country. We're a country of laws. Um and you know, elected officials and people should follow them. Right. And sometimes uh, it might, sometimes it might hurt you, but you know, sucks to suck. Yeah. Okay. My third one here is Buffett is in hot water. Right. Elon's not his biggest fan, according to the Joe Rogan podcast. Which did you listen? No, I can't. I actually couldn't. When I saw that he said he was going to cure the blind and quadriplegics, I I couldn't listen because I know it's just all. And Tesla Charts calls it this techno babble, pretend engineering. It's, it's, it's all, it's just so dumb. I can't listen to that stuff anymore. I, on, well, okay. Whether you like Musk or not, I, I honestly found the conversation not very engaging. I thought it was boring. Uh, maybe, it, maybe I'm like anchoring to the first one, which was highly entertaining. 
but I thought it was boring. Uh, but he basically bashes Buffett for his, spending his life as a capital allocator. And if this, if one billionaire making fun of probably the billionaire with the most integrity and the most honest billionaire isn't like the most clear sign of a huckster. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, look, Buffett and Gates are going to be donating over a hundred billion dollars to charity, maybe $200 billion when it's all said and done uh, from their trusts and stuff. But to, uh, to Elon Musk, they're underwhelming to be honest. Right. Is that what he said to Bill Gates? I, uh, and if, if that hot water wasn't enough for you, I, you can obviously tell I, Elon takes up far too much of my time. Uh, yeah, we're I, all there. We're all there. We're trapped in this hole. People. I have to mute some people on Twitter, unfortunately. People are <laughs> yeah, it, you got to you gotta go cold turkey. Yeah. It's you got to quit. But uh, Dude, it's either, it's like, it's going to be like Scarface, if you've ever seen that. Where I have, uh, I have not. That's old. It's older than you, so you can't really judge, but the... It's basically like, I don't know, things unravel and he basically tries to go down guns a blazing and things aren't either going to like, you know what I mean? They're, yeah. He's not going to go down without a fight. Tesla charts was right. He said, we said, how do you picture this all unfolding? And he said, I don't know what's going to, I don't know how it's going to finish, but it's going to happen fast. Yeah. And if this is the end, who knows if it is, uh, who knows? Uh, we, we definitely don't. I don't think anyone does. It, this is pretty fast. Yeah. Um, okay. What did you have for hot water this week? Okay. Well, our nation is in hot water because we are, this is the point. Like I, you know, not to toot my own horn. I, I think a lot of people said that we were going to go crazy uh, in about six to eight weeks during the lockdowns. And that has happened. Uh, one example of this, and there's many, uh, is people protesting uh, gyms not reopening by doing squats and push-ups outside of a Florida courthouse. I did see this. Which what? You're, you're just showing right. that you don't need the gym. Yeah, <laughs> you're. I mean, the irony there. Like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Great. Like the the judge is like, great. I can see you guys are actually getting your you know your workout on out here. I mean, I don't <laughs> think the gym is that essential. Yeah. All right. Next one. Okay. And. Interactive Brokers user that was trading oil. Don't know if you saw this, but he started the day with $77,000 in his account. And on the negative trading day, when Interactive Brokers had their bug, he ended up owing Interactive Brokers $9 million. A quote on that uh, from the story, because he's not a rich person at all. uh, He said, the statement arrived with a loss so big that it was expressed as an exponent. Oh, dude. I mean, this is like, yeah, I mean, interactive brokers took the hit that I think they took like over a hundred million dollar hit, uh, for people for things like this that was happening, but he got, he was definitely the largest one. This is the primary reason why you invest in what you understand. Yes. Yes. Like these are, these are like the cautionary tales, but it, yeah, you don't, don't get greedy. Purpose. Don't get greedy. Don't go on margin. Don't trade Forex and oil and stuff like that if you don't know what's going on. Um, yeah. All right. What else? Uh, one more. Lime. Like you mentioned, they got an investment from Uber, but Uber invested in them at a $510 million valuation, which is down 79% from $2.4 billion last April. That $2.4 billion has got to be one of the worst investments 
ever. Like, who thought a scooter company worth $2.4 billion is a total joke? Yeah, I've used these things. They're fun occasionally, but it's... Okay, like, who, who cares? Yeah, I've like ridden them. They're fun. Thing. Like, you kind of do it for a little bit, and then you kind of get sick of it. Um, but Yeah, I'm going to yeah. ride my bike instead. Yeah, okay. Shout out to Uber for buying the dip. I mean... They did it. Could end... Well, you know... Could be wrong. Could end up being a good investment. At least yep. Uber's at a way better valuation. But keep in mind, they fired, what was it, 17% of the workforce in order to seed this funding round. Yeah. Yeah. So those workers should feel good. Yeah. All right. Any other ones? That's it. Okay. The theme this week for Fuck, Mary Kill is, uh, I guess this really isn't the theme, but I asked for great businesses at good prices on Twitter this week, and I got a few responses. There were a lot of people that said these these few names, so I'll give them to you. Fastly, Etsy, and Mercado Libre. Which ones do you like? Oh, uh, yeah. Fastly's been doing really well, but I did sort of like them at their valuation. I want to check just briefly the sales ratios. I know they're different types of businesses. Yeah, Fastly's up there a ton. Oh, it doesn't this website doesn't have the sales ratio. I want to see where Mercado Libre is at too. Wow, Mercado Libre is almost up to eight hundred a share. Market cap. I, I think I'm gonna look, Mercado Libre seems like a solid business, but one it's in South America, so I don't think it should have as high of a valuation multiple to EVD sales is almost sixteen now. Uh, so I think I'm going to marry Etsy. Don't like it either way. Um, it's been on my watch list, but I still don't think Etsy has that large addressable market. And plus, again, they're at over an EV to sales of 11 now. Although people, you know, people like Etsy, I think it's steady. I just don't think it's got as, it's not like going to replace Amazon or anything. Um, so I'll marry Etsy. Fuck Fastly because they're just on a tear. Uh, still don't understand the business very well, so it's not something I'm going to actually invest in. And then I'm going to kill Mercado Libre, mainly on valuation and uh, South America. Sorry, South America. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of the people that responded to that tweet said Fastly. They really like Fastly. So it's a hot, hot name. Hot name right that's now. That's probably the one to bang. Um, I might marry Etsy. They feel like it's, it's slower growing than Mercado Libre but it seems like sustainable growth. They seem sort of like an Amazon for antique store, antique items, I guess. Eh, um, sort of, sort of. It's more of like, it's a better eBay almost with, you know, creators. Like it's not secondhand goods, it's like people creating their own stuff. Right. Um, so I'll marry Etsy and then, yeah, I guess I'll have to kill Mercado Libre. I'm actually not sure on the valuation. I haven't really, I didn't really do a whole lot of digging, but, uh, all, all businesses that, that I like, so. Yeah, they're all solid. There's all businesses I've looked at a lot, but never actually owned uh, for one reason or another. Okay, anecdotal evidence. What do you have this week? Okay, uh, let's see. All right. So, I decided to have one thing. Officially, I bought some small cap value ETF for my Roth IRA. It is 15 basis points expense ratio. It's a Vanguard one, um, has historically tracked the index very well. Uh, any reason that you think I should not do this or continue to add shares over time? Um, I don't know. What's the, it's in your Roth? Roth, and the holding period is indefinite. So, 
what's kind of your thesis behind it? One small cap value based on the numbers and look, historical performance doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future, but over the last century, small cap value is the largest or the best performing factor on the market. Um, maybe everyone knows that and it's not going to have that advantage. And then two, uh, the gap between growth and value, and I own a lot of growth stocks, so I'm getting a lot of exposure to stocks I don't have, so it's not like I'm overlapping, but the gap between growth and value, and especially large cap growth and small cap value, is the largest or almost the largest it's ever been, even larger than the tech boom. Hmm. Yeah, I see no problem with adding to it periodically. I wouldn't have it make up like your entire portfolio, but I mean, especially if it's in your Roth. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe you're getting it at a discount. Yeah. And I hope, I don't know. Like, I think like people always say that value is dead at the exact moment when it's about to crush. And everyone is saying right now that value is dead and dunking on people that are still value investors. So I thought, you know, I think I can hold this for the next 40, 50 years. And if it historically outperforms like it does, um, I'm going to be, you know, pretty rich from it. And if it underperforms by a little bit, like it has, I'll still have plenty of money. So yeah. Um, taking a little more. All right. Well, anecdotal evidence for me, I went to Costco this week. Oh, um, big time. Masks were mandatory, I believe. I, I had mine on and it looked like everyone else did. Uh, but as we were signing out or as we were leaving and uh, purchasing our stuff, they had like the plexiglass screen and then there was the little payment terminal and it was a visa payment or point of sale solution thing. It was a visa version and my mom like put her card up to it and I was like, no, you got to put it in the thing. And she's like, no, I don't. And ding, like in a second, tap to pay. You don't know about tap to pay? I have not used tap to pay before. I don't think the POS systems are have have evolved enough for me to do that from where I'm from or where I spend most of my money. But yeah, it was sleek. And I think it's going to get a boost from uh, this whole like no contact social distancing kind of thing. Yeah, cashless will. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's just kind of sleeker. You don't have to press the buttons on the terminal. It's just a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, yeah, well, cashless in general, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for listening. Thanks again to Steve for coming on the show. Very much enjoyed it. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Follow us. Sorry, I should have said this first. Follow us wherever you're listening. Like and leave a review or uh, rate us and re- leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Also, we've been getting a lot of email recommendations for shows. Really enjoy that. Uh, we like when people do that because it's names that we haven't looked at. So our email is chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to give us some recommendations. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.
Slaughter. <laughs>